This is a message from our sponsor. I'd like to introduce you to Publica by IAS, the award-winning CTV ad server trusted by some of the biggest streaming services and smart TV manufacturers globally. Publica helps a growing number of leading AVOD and FAST services to power the programmatic ad break decisioning via products including a unified auction, server-side ad insertion, and a demand-agnostic ad server built from the ground up around streaming. Head to getpublica.com to find out how they help CTV publishers to grow their advertising revenues and provide streaming audiences with linear-like TV ad break experiences. Welcome to the Architecture Podcast. I'm Aaron Caparo. I'm joined today by Eric Franchi and Ryan Barwick, the reporter for The Morning Brew. Ryan, thank you for being here. Of course. Thanks for having me, man. So we have an exciting show today. We're going to talk about the latest news around Google, um, some of Ryan's reporting around that and other uh, related subjects. Also, some news about Twitter going programmatic and the newest offering in carbon neutrality from Scope 3. So a lot of good information this week. Uh, before we get started, I want to remind everyone that after the interview, we have our new segment, Justify Your Existence. This week, interesting company called OpenAds.ai. They're AdWords for AI-generated content. So that's a pretty interesting concept. Uh, I hope you'll stay around and listen to it. All right, let's talk Ryan. So what is Morning Through? It's kind of an interesting company. Uh, newsletters, you know, like young people, news summaries. How would you describe it? Merch. Yeah. Merch. merch. Yeah, <laughs> merch too. Merch, podcast, video, and TikTok. Morning Brew is like a pretty interesting place. And now like I've been there two and a half years and I'm like somehow uh, more of a veteran just because I've been there and we've grown so much since I've been there. When I was hired, I'd worked at Adweek and then I came over to Morning Brew. I was maybe one of five or six reporters. So there is a daily newsletter that a lot of people, including my mom and probably maybe your mom or your cousins are reading. Um, not my mom. That's super, not your mom. That's very popular. Uh, and it's generally just kind of aggregated news. Here's what's happening. Here's what you need to know. And then from that, we have these like desks, like a traditional newsroom that's covering healthcare, IT, media and advertising. I'm pointing to myself, uh, CFO stuff. And uh, I'm trying to think retail, right? And then a general tech one. So we have all of these desks. And each desk is staffed somewhere between three to five reporters. So, you know, I was like the fifth or sixth reporter hired. And now there's so many of us. And we're all kind of siloed in on these very weird niche beats. But there's a real audience for it. You know, it's funny. Like, our audience is somewhere like not quite at the ad exchanger get into the... And obviously, those reporters are great. I love them all. I love all the reporters on this beat. We will not quite get as far into the weeds as that exchanger, but we will still try to silo a lot of these stories for, you know, advertising media and the stuff that I'm covered. So I'm kind of like the tech reporter on Marketing Brew within Morning Brew, right? So it is kind of a, a weird structure. And yeah, I didn't cover ad tech before I came over here. And now the joke I tell in every interview is that I have a nosebleed and my eyes are crossed. I've got blood dripping from my ears every time I try to understand this stuff. Are you permitted to say how many subs you have for the marketing uh, newsletter? I feel like that would be above my pay grade. So I'm okay. not sure. I don't, I, I'm, I'm not entirely 
sure about that, but it has grown since I've started here. And it's like, one thing that's odd with newsletters, right? Is because so like, we're all doing the newsletter. I'm contributing full-fledged reporting in that newsletter, but because there's five of us, right? Like I might not be in yesterday's newsletter, but I'm in today's newsletter. I wrote the, the newsletter the other day. So there is kind of like a, we're like juggling responsibility, but to readers, readers don't care. They just want to know what the news is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The reason why I ask is like industry sizing is always in terms of like number of people, quite literally, right? It's always a thing that I and, and others try to figure out. Um, and I feel like, you know, you all might be an interesting proxy for, you know, some sort of percentage of, you know, the, the, the sort of total potential readership, which implies, you know, people that work in or are adjacent to, uh, to, to marketing, right? Because it's like, if you zoom out, the biggest companies are effectively digital ad companies. So is it hundreds of thousands of people work in our industry? Or is right. it like, you know, the subset that really work on ads? It's like the eternal question I'm looking to answer that, again, I failed at uh, getting anywhere close to it. I always well, joke that between like Los Angeles and New York, there's not going to be a single local newspaper between the two, but there's going to be 50 substacks about ad tech or 50 newsrooms dedicated to ad tech. Ne that's not necessarily a good thing for society, but there's a ton of interest in ad tech. And there's also obviously a ton of money there. So it's been interesting to learn about this space and kind of, it's a really like, everyone is like hyper engaged. And I think to a point that you, that is, uh, Ari's like the Jedi, I feel like of, of this space. A lot of people will say that. So like he knows better than anyone, but. I would argue that he's Darth Vader. Darth Vader, okay. Darth I'm, Vader. Uh, I would say Obi-Wan. Um, Obi okay, all right, all right. That's better. <laughs> okay, that's, uh, that's a step above you. Yeah, <laughs> not that not that old yet. I love this estimate question. So I've always I've been asked this a million times. Here's my estimate: There's like two thousand people who are hardcore ad tech. They're the people who respond to your tweets, have opinions about things. They all know Matt Barish. Um, there's about like <laughs> I would say twenty thousand people who are in ad tech in some form, meaning they occasionally go to conferences, they have a login in the trade desk, they're doing something in ad tech. And then the big circle, how many people are in digital advertising? 150,000, maybe? Because there's a lot of agency people. There's a lot of creative people. People go to Cannes, you know, that'd be my really rough estimate. It's tough, though, because I feel like as a reporter, I spend all of my time trying to understand what SPO is, right? Or mm -hmm. getting into the weeds about all this media map stuff. But I think the average digital marketer is somewhere in... Omaha using Meta and Google, right? right? So like, how do you tell both those stories at the same time? How do you balance the importance of everything? If you just look at where all the money is actually going, it's really just those three, you know, Amazon, Meta, and and, and Google, right? So yeah, and we actually, it's amazing to us that like, I will get leader emails from like Louisiana, someone in the middle of Louisiana who just reads and they do digital marketing for like their count basically and like that's so interesting that's really amazing yeah i mean one proxy is how many people have an adwords account google ads that's probably the biggest circle you get uh and that's more than a hundred thousand that's, that's millions why million it might be millions, millions. yeah duplicates yeah you know i but i even even in our industry like i remember i was at a cocktail party um uh, which is you know how i spend my time and um i was introduced to a, a person who was ceo of a ad agency, one of those like ad agencies underneath the big holding company. 
And uh, I explained what I was doing at the time. It was beeswax, DSP. And she kind of had no idea what I was talking about. Like the, like the phrase DSP kind of landed a little flat on her. And she was sort of like, oh, yeah, kind of like what we do with Google, right? And I was sort of amazed like that there are a lot of pockets. There are a lot of different pockets in advertising. People who just don't cross paths with one another in various contexts. So Ryan, how do you? Is, what have you been working on? What's what's going on? And this is a big market. A lot of stuff going on. How do you pick what to write about? And what have you been writing about? I am having a weird summer. I got back from a honeymoon and then was immediately pulled into grand uh, jury service. So I spent I spent off the summer for something like six weeks. But then coming back, there's just so much going on that's kind of hard to pick and choose. In terms of what I'm fascinated in, I think the incentive structure of digital advertising is really interesting. The way publishers use these tools to make money for the audiences they have. I like to write about ad tech a lot through the lens of publishers because they actually make something, right? Like you can ground a story in a newsroom that is then, you know, that has an audience, right? And then it's filtered out. But I am endlessly fascinated by privacy legislation. I'm really curious what's going on with Google and all this antitrust stuff. I'm curious about all of the AI stuff and I'm trying to diffuse the gimmick of it a little bit because I wrote stories. I wrote stories about generative AI my third month at Morning Brew two and a half years ago. Like I wrote a story about a company that was pitching generative copywriting tools like we'll write headlines we'll write content right so none of this stuff is new right like and, and that so that has been interesting to see like i've now survived like the crypto craze and now i'm like in the, the metaverse craze obviously and now i'm in the generative ai bubble it's tough to figure out how to pick stories and also to like not be cynical cynical is too strong of a word but to like figure out like what's real here and what's like actual hype and it can be challenging because a lot of people buy into hype and it's part of my job to actually cover the hype right because if someone's doing that then our then our readers are going to think we're completely out of out of check have you heard of any success stories with generative ai and advertising and marketing like real success stories yeah i mean google is using it right like like sure. the bard search engine right like that that to me is now that those, those large companies are doing it and they're including generative ai within their like ad tools so we can make a thousand different banner ads okay sure that's interesting and that's probably helpful but no i haven't really seen a ton of like every creative agency is touting their investments in ai and how they're using it but it's really like i haven't seen the kind of success stories and i'm not going to cover something that wins a can award right like that's not that interesting to that many people you know then then on the you know programmatic ad tech side like Machine learning is always there, right? So it's right. really hard. Like you have to really put on the, the sniff test to determine like, okay, now the, the press release says AI 30 times, but is this really all that different from what they were doing three years ago? And that's really challenging. And then usually when I talk to people like Ari or like other ad tech experts in the States, they say, oh no, they were doing this five years ago, right? This isn't interesting. This isn't newsworthy. So yeah, no, I mean, nothing that's completely blown me away, but you know, maybe I'm Maybe I'm missing something off the top of my head. Yeah, Eric, you invest in this area, so you you would be talking up your book if you talked about how great it is. But have you seen any you know breakthrough case studies? Anyone who has changed the world with their generative AI advertising? Well, change the world um, okay, change, is change the quite 
aggressive. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, for sure. I think um, there's two areas that uh, we're seeing real world impact on today. And I think there's you know stuff that that you know one could be excited about in the future. On the creative side, like the tools to produce, you know, ads using generative AI tools, like they're there. So like, you know, there's plenty of companies that are using these platforms that, you know, sit on top of some of these other, you know, LLMs um, and, and open models to produce creative really quickly. And then there's, you know, some companies, again, you know, within the portfolio, memorable that are um, then taking these, running them through some sort of predictive modeling and then able to produce better ads, right? So I think the creative stuff and yeah, to Ryan's point, like like with Pmax and Meta's equivalent, they're doing this stuff right now. Like they're taking people's landing pages and creating ads for them and optimizing on the fly. So I think the creative stuff is well underway. You know, there's like interesting things that are happening on the operations side. So using AI to find operational anomalies this isn't the sexy stuff. I don't think any of these companies are necessarily pitching Ryan. But to me, like that's a really interesting area. And I think the third, it's early and this requires like significant like workplace shift or workplace adoption is, um, you know, AI just that, you know, helps to automate workflows. And there's companies that are working on that, but you need to like get an enterprise to really shift or have a forward leaning client to do it. So it's early days for that. But yeah, absolutely. Particularly with the, the first and second examples. I guess I'm kind of waiting for the press release or the speech at at uh, the IEB where Crawford Gamble says, like, we became 40% more efficient because we use AI to create right. the creatives, or we doubled our results because they came up with taglines we never would have thought of, yeah. or something like that. And maybe my bar is too high versus just creating new new sizes and versions but of things I write. It on. takes time. Like, the P&G conversation is not the conversation, like, you should expect next year, but I think there's going to be plenty of forward-leaning marketers that can even speak to this stuff today. Like again, the, you know. The question I ask in a lot of interviews around this kind of stuff is, and I, again, like I am really not as cynical as my questions sound, but like this tool will make it easier for you to send emails, right? Like generative AI will write you a really good email. And if you can send 30% more emails, does that mean you're getting more like and sales go up 5%, right? And it like that is a less interesting story, but that's probably the most profound impact in terms of how I see this kind of stuff today. It all comes down to writing emails. And my my wife works in a creative agency. She's teaching herself to use mid-journey because she's now doing it in pitches. Like that to me is the most obvious thing. It's not something that is going to exist in the real world. But instead of literally drawing a sketch that she will then show a client, she types it in and then uses that, right? So that stuff is like, I, I really do see the real world application, but like how many times can we write this kind of story? And and when companies do say we're using AI and we're 25% more efficient, you know, I think it's my job and other reporters job to really like poke holes and say, like, okay, so how? Did you just send more emails? And that's an okay answer. I, th I think the the use case of using AI to create cool creatives is so obvious that there's a bubble of companies doing it. Uh, <laughs> you know, like how many times people could do variations? I literally got a text message today from some rando who's doing it for uh, commerce ads. It's inevitable. I think I got you the know, same I, one. I usually like to plug uh, architecture features, but in the nature of honesty, I'm going to do an anti-plug, which is the <laughs> architecture AI is dead. Um, because the company we built it on went out of business. So I'm looking for a new AI provider and uh, we'll hopefully we'll bring back the architecture AI bot because it died a week ago. Very sad.
full disclosure in this podcast. Uh, so <laughs> another thing that's happening in AI that maybe Ryan, you have a point of view on a number of platforms have announced that there have AI labeling rules. I think Snap just today announced that, that you have to label, maybe with TikTok, you have to label your ads if they're generated or your content if it's generated AI. And Spotify um, kicked off the, not the ads, but content that was AI generated. Any thoughts on that? Is that a trend or is there a reason why you, we should care if a content is AI generated versus not? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, so Google, I believe, is now going to roll out transparency and uh, as it relates to political ads, right? Yeah, political and ads. I think AI is being a part of that. Yeah, I think that's like super compelling. The question you ask then the CMO is like, will less people click on this because there's a disclaimer? And does then that stop people from doing this kind of stuff? I don't think we know the answer to that yet. Disclaimers look kind of awkward, but like these are talented, creative people. I could see people playing with that. You know, we might look past it. I know I personally, when I'm on TikTok, I will see like, anytime you see the sponsored or anytime you see the eligible for commission thing, you immediately blow past it because I'm not interested in being sold to. Maybe that's what will happen with the AI disclaimer stuff. I don't know how like culturally significant it is. I mean, misinformation reporters and people in that space, like it could be super troublesome if there's a video of me saying something abhorrent and it's not labeled as artificial intelligence, do tech companies actually have the skills to like determine what is AI and what isn't? You know, I don't know. I think yeah, tech companies think... do. People don't. And yeah. when, you know, when it's viewed by people, then, you know, you, you've already, uh, you've already lost the battle. Right. This actually brings up a topic that's not on our agenda. So I don't know if you guys are following it, but uh, that is fascinating. Uh, Nandini, who was on our show about a month or two ago from Block my ads. Not, not check my ads. Check my ads. Check, check my, my ads. Sorry. So she's been finding, along with a bunch of cohorts on Twitter X, that Twitter has stopped labeling ads as ads, which is a very clear FTC violation. No, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, and there are a lot of ads on Twitter that don't have the ad marking. So first they removed the large word promoted and made it a very small word ad that's very hard to see. And now a very large portion of their ads don't say ad at all. And a X engineer or product manager responded saying that when you click on the ad, it plays a video that is marked as an ad. And that is dirty pool in my point of view. Have, have either of you been, seen this drama playing out? Yeah, I've seen the ads. I, I thought it was originally like display ads kind of, but not just videos. So was this silo just a video ads? Yeah. So the response from this, uh, engineer, I'm going to have to find it and put it in the show notes, was that this is a new product they have where you click on it and it plays a video and the video is clearly marked as an ad. The yeah, problem nice. is it's beholden to, you know, video click-through rates, which, you know, as as we all know, are quite low. So, you know, the majority of the exposures are going to be uh, not labeled as, as ads. Yeah, this is ads 101. I mean, labeling yeah. your ads as ads, that's something the FTC has busted people on a ton of times. That's like there are sure. cases out there. And they'll, they'll go after nuanced cases, like calling your product free, but it's not free. They will go after you for that. So it, it can be hard with Twitter stuff. It can be hard to figure out if it, it's malicious or just disorganized chaos that is now appearing right. itself like on an ad platform. I know that's, I have asked people about the ad thing. May or may not be working on that story. Not that I have anything like 
major interesting about it. Everyone's just kind of confused about it. So yeah, no, that that is like super fascinating. Again, it's hard to tell if this is chaos or if there's malicious, actual malicious intent there. I'm, I'm reading the Elon biography about Walter Isaacson right now. I don't have an opinion about it yet. Uh, but I will say, from what I've read so far, that I would not want to be the product manager who told Elon that we couldn't do that. Uh, that, that <laughs> very clearly, it would not be a fun job. While we're on that subject, I know we're kind of wandering all over the place in this conversation. How about the um, other Twitter news that they're equating views on the timeline for Tucker Carlson with his Nielsen ratings on Fox? which is the most absurd comparison. Various people have been saying uh, only 4 million people watched Tucker on Fox and 300 million people viewed him on Twitter. What's the definition of a, of a video view, Ari, according to Twitter? According to Twitter, it's it, the tweet was in your timeline. Got it. If someone uh, retweeted it and it showed up in your timeline, that's a view. You viewed Tucker, even if you didn't listen to a second of it. I, I tweeted this earlier. Not to be the guy that's like, oh, I tweeted this, but <laughs> you are that guy. You are that guy. Thank you, you know. big bit. But we, we found our David Sachs. Yeah. <laughs> um, so when I worked at Adweek Magazine, and a lot of that was interviewing CMOs. They've got a new campaign. We're going to interview the CMO. What was your strategy? I would be in meetings with very smart people, and they would tell me this campaign had 25 billion impressions, right? And now it's just like, oh, we had 5 billion impressions, 15 billion impressions, 25 billion impressions across all social platforms. And that is such a ridiculous, totally blown out of proportion figure. And sure, maybe they did across all of these different platforms sewn together, but like, so what? That doesn't mean anything. No. So the industry, the advertising industry has operated this, this way for a while. So I think the fact that Elon is kind of leaning into it is like kind of funny because I have had CMOs tell me to my face that their campaigns have reached billions and billions of people when it's like complete fiction. Yeah, I remember I was at an ad tech conference, the old ad tech conference in like 2000, and the CMO of <laughs> Samsung was a speaker and he, he showed all of his ads, these terrible little tiny little banner ads because it was 2000, and he said... We reached more people than Yahoo, AOL, and Google combined, or something like that. And it was like, what? What, what sort of comparison is that? That doesn't make any sense. I mean, yeah, if, if I came out and I said, you know, Morning Birds newsletter was seen by 40 million people, like, you would, your eyebrow would twitch. It defies logic, right? And you just like, we don't know that many people that have seen you know, a specific ad, right? Now, obviously, if you're a progressive commercial that's airing during Sunday football, okay, I can see how we're reaching into the millions and millions of people. But any kind of like random digital ad campaign, which is largely predicated on retargeting, so showing the same people the ad, like what are we talking about here? So I, I don't know, I think this is kind of funny that he's leaning leaning into the wild world of like impressions and viewerships and different, you know, alternative measurement currencies. I'd like to see Nielsen step in here and maybe they can verify <laughs> this stuff. That would, that would be hysterical. Um, the, uh, I'm glad you find it funny. Though. That's, that's good. A little levity, levity the day-to-day. -day. Uh, speaking of humor, how about privacy? You're on the privacy beat. Interesting stuff going on with California and brokers. But I say interesting in quotes because it, it is horribly boring. So how, how do you keep excited about this and keep your readers excited about it? Yeah. 
it's funny too because i think a lot of maybe my my editor is awesome um but even then i, I always feel like privacy stuff kind of has a hard sell because you know i would argue that it does matter because it's this weird intersection between like advertising legislation and real people now how many real people are actually going to write to a data broker and say do not collect data on me right like most people might not do that and it only matters until it does matter like zephora was hit with a big privacy fine for using uh, essentially ad tech and not disclosing it right and that was big news and, you know, the, the California's attorney general had told multiple companies, hey, by the way, this is coming. This is coming. You need to make the changes. And, and you know, in that case, the change was never made. So I do think this kind of stuff is, is really important to continue to cover, especially as the space gets even weedier and weirder. But, yeah, it can be a hard, a hard sell in terms of how important is a specific bill especially if it's not passed yet i've gotten burned on that where i've written stories i've spent a week focusing on you know uh, on a specific privacy bill and then it never even passes so it's like okay i just wasted a week on nothing do you have a take on why california's government is so aggressive about privacy when it's their biggest industry i mean you don't see michigan senators talking about regulating autos um, or New York Senator W. Schumer will do anything to support Wall Street, then the California government is just all about privacy. Yeah, I I don't. I'm sure very smart people have written books about why. One thing that feels, as a reporter, feels accurate, like if this is happening in California, it can probably be replicated elsewhere. Like we saw that California has a privacy law, and now 12 states have privacy laws, right? So that feels like a good beat, right? So California passed the Delete Act, which essentially allows its citizens to opt out of data broker saying, we want you to delete all data for everyone that's registered as a data broker in California. Will other states follow? We'll see. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's really interesting. I don't know how impactful, and I don't essentially know like the dollar and cents fallout from something like this, but... You know, I think it's really interesting. And I, I think says a lot about the advertising industry when the industry's argument is essentially like, no, like ads will support us, right? Like I think the, the ads support media, ads support the internet. The industry hasn't really done a great job in like informing real people who hear words like tracking and are immediately like, I don't want, I want to be opted out of that, right? So I think, you know, privacy legislation provides an opportunity for real people to actually kind of understand ad tech. And I think there's a lot of entry points and interesting stories that fall out from that. You kind of bring up a, a subject we missed a couple of weeks ago because we just had other things to cover. Maybe, Eric, you have a point of view on this. Google Sandbox blowback that Paul Graham, the founder of Y Combinator, basically called it spyware and tweeted the instructions for turning off the sandbox. And that seems to be the reaction of a lot of people that Google's point of view is this is so much more private than cookies. And the ordinary Joe on the street's point of view is you're tracking me. Why would I allow this? Well, it's almost like they didn't say what they're already doing, right? Like, why do you think you're seeing the same pairs of shoe on every website, right? Because of cookies, because that site knows or because, you know, an ad tech company knows that you're interested in that because Google knows that you're interested in that Nike shoe. It seems like that infrastructure is still only to exist with privacy sandbox. It's just going to be hidden to a certain degree. I think even the fact that they mention ad tech freaks people out, right? 
Google so missed the point here. There is absolutely no difference in the consumer's mind between seeing the same ad over and over again because of cookies and seeing the ad over and over again because of some privacy-protected method that's not understandable. The exact same thing in the consumer's mind. My take is is similar to Ryan's, and it's what he just said, and also what he said, you know, a minute ago, um, which is uh, the industry at large. And you probably need to like point to Google being, you know, the, the the largest and most important does a really bad job of product marketing. Simple as that is like you know informing your constituents and like getting the messaging out correctly. Like it, it could have been a good opportunity, and then it was a it was a it was a flub. They should they should call launch science. <laughs> Launch science, yes. Um, we would help Google out, I think. Um, we would do our best. So, Ryan, a lot of, um, this is a horrible question to ask, but a lot of our listeners are startups and early companies. How do they get the attention of a reporter like you to get that big article written about? Yeah, I would say, like, simple emails. And do not format it. Like, every every pitch that I will get that is formatted like a pitch that, like, clearly they've shared with a thousand people, my brain is already trained to not read it. Unless it's from like a big company, then obviously I'll, I will read it. But if it's a random startup and they're sending me this thing, I might I know how to you know, keep going. I, I will read every email, but I will open and close every email. Just say you're solving a problem. Say we've raised this much money. We're solving this problem. We want to serve these people. We've worked with these companies or we've gotten investment from these companies. It's really like that simple. And I think most reporters are very easily accessible. You can, uh, I guess with X, like maybe you can't DM me because I don't have blue, whatever. Uh, but uh, my email is very easy to find. Like even my phone number. I Now, please do not do this. I've had PR people text me, say, hey, man, what's up? Can you do it? Like, I'm like, please do not do that. But yeah, like you can always email and, and just, you know, make it as clear as possible why it's relevant. And if it's not relevant for this immediate thing that I'm working on, it may very well, like I'm, we're all writing like four stories at the same time. Right. So like I might use that for another thing. So I'm always open. Fortunately, I don't have to write stories based on pitches. I always have my own thing going on, but uh, yeah, just like write in plain, simple language, why it's important. Right. And always start the email with, I, uh, I heard you on the architecture podcast. <laughs> and I wanted to follow up. And and for anyone who's listening, Ryan's email is no, I'm just kidding. I will not be disclosing your email on this podcast. Barwick at morningbrew.com. It's very simple. Look, all right. I hide from L C Transparency. Yeah. Uh okay, let's take a quick break and we'll come back with the news. I know we've just been talking news. This whole news episode. All right, we'll be back in one second. This architecture podcast is sponsored by Adelaide. Remember where's Waldo? He was one hundred percent viewable, but still awfully hard to find. Your digital ads are like Waldo, viewable, but in a sea of distractions. You need to move beyond viewability. Adelaide helps brands like Mars, Audi, Colgate, and the NBA measure media quality and drive better performance by optimizing campaigns programmatically with attention data. Adelaide's metric, AU, is available at nearly every major DSP and SSP, making it easy to leverage attention metrics. Get a free Waldo was viewable t-shirt at adelaidemetrics.com Waldo. All right, we're back. So more news. Let's talk about recent stuff going on. Um, let's talk about the Google trial. That's a good subject. So as listeners to this podcast know, uh, Google is now on trial for its first antitrust case regarding search. Today, there were some documents released, um, and there's an excellent tweet storm by Jason Kent about 
He's a anti-Google lobbyist. Full executives uh, in, were manipulating Google search to hit quarterly financial numbers. And these documents are very explicit. They say things like, we need to hit this number by this date. Maybe we should change the search results. <laughs> Those sort of things. I don't know if you guys have seen it. It just kind of came out a couple of hours ago. Ryan, are you, are you covering this closely or are you, uh, is this on your beat? Yeah, so it is on my beat. I'm not in Washington, D.C., so I'm not even going to pretend to be like the expert that followed everything beat by beat. It is interesting that like this isn't explicitly an advertising antitrust case. That is obviously a big part of that. That's how search makes its money. We obviously, as your listeners probably know, there's another ad tech case that is coming yeah. down the mountain later. I am genuinely curious how advertisers will respond to this, right? Because they don't really have a ton of options. They can go to Bing, they can go to Yahoo, but Google is like the verb to search things, right? And now they're they're introducing new tech there. They're doing generative search. So there's you know a real sales pitch to say, hey, invest in this space. It's really interesting. I think having executives say we need to make more money isn't shocking, but I can't think of a worse hell than having my emails read in an antitrust case. Like I have sympathies for, for those individuals. And that was the piece actually that you mentioned it. That was the piece when I saw that from, from Jason. It's like, oh, wow, pricing knobs. Pricing and, you, knobs. You, and, and, and they, they, they couch it in, well, these are tests, right? Like we are testing this to see what works. And maybe that works, like certainly not accusing anyone, but you know, my reporter brain immediately was like, whoa, okay. Cause it's, you kind of assume that companies do stuff like that, but then when it's explicitly laid out, that is smoking gun is way too big of a word, scary word, but like, this is really like proof that, yeah, yeah that, I mean, that if you, if I'm an advertiser on the platform, I wouldn't love hearing this, I guess. No, you you expect as an advertiser to have a fair auction being run above board, and you expect as a user to get the best search results for your for your search. And so, when dirty laundry comes out, it says that that's not always true. That their the third interest, which is financial interest, could take precedence over those first two. Doesn't feel good. Uh, I don't know if it rises to the level of uh, being found guilty, being broken up, being restrained, but it doesn't feel good. So I, I want to ask, as the the Obi Wan of the space here, Ari, mm. what was the perspective ten years ago, right? Because I think a lot of that stuff, like as someone who's very new to this beat, it like it all just seems kind of like not obvious, but like you know, yeah. I knew Google was dominant in eighth grade, right? So like, what did you think as an actual player in the space? Yeah, I I think that at the time I was there, which was two thousand eight through two thousand and ten. They were riding high, and I feel as though the culture was pretty honest and above board. When they talked about making changes to search, it was to make money, but also to improve the results. And I think they really felt that way. And I think something changed in the 10 years after I left in both display, which I'm much more familiar with than search. In display in particular, um, and if you read the DOJ case, they just kept taking more and more incremental little steps that were legally permissive, where they could make the argument to themselves, they were doing it to the benefit of everybody, but they clearly were picking winners and losers, and they were always the winner. And every little one was just getting deeper and deeper into a moral morass. And that's effectively what the DOJ ad tech case is about. They're basically saying, like, 
they did these 10 things, Bernanke, Bernanke Global, Poirot, Jedi Blue. They did all these things and they all just like piled up into one big moral quagmire. Yeah, I think the the one thing to add to this specifically, and I didn't I didn't see all the all, all the info, just the, the the one tweet that you you put into the doc are is um, manipulating the user experience to meet your quarterly numbers is as old probably as media, right? Right, like you know, put another ad there, you know, increase the auto refresh time. Like there, there's a lot of things that media companies can can do, and I think um, as long as you know, they're not doing anything that's not above board in terms of like viewability and measurement, like all that stuff, you know, it's like, it, it just seems to be the, the reality. Where this differs, and this is where Jason pointed out on that one tweet, is that it's search. Search is a utility. We're doing this to find information for a variety of reasons, and it could be really, really important reasons. And when you start to blur that line or that, you know, wall, so to speak, between product and ads in a business like Google, that's where it can get pretty, pretty concerning, quite frankly. Yeah. I, I, it reminds me, in the journalism world or the media world, the church and state divide exists, but they work together. And I feel as though, because Google has always rejected its role, anything like an editorial voice in what it does, it just says the algorithm is choosing the search results. They've sort of avoided the problem of having a pushback from a different party. And so there's only one one guy who's responsible for both, ultimately. And that's a problem. Yeah, and then the emails come out. And then the emails <laughs> come out, right? Exactly. I swear, when the ad tech case comes out, I might just, like, rent a tent and live on the streets <laughs> of DC. I don't know how I could not cover it. I just want to be there. Um, but it's also, like, I am obviously not a judge, right? So I'm not going to... I have no idea. Yeah, how this will be decided, or even the inner workings of the Sherman Act, because I asked you AP U.S. history, but I do not know the specifics of the law. One thing I find interesting is that they're making the argument that advertisers could have been harmed here, right? And that goes, that seems less of a moral argument than publishers are harmed, right? Which is part of the ad tech case, right? Like right. they took money from newspapers, right? Like that that's going to harm local communities. And I think that stuff is super, super important. Like, I, I wonder how it will resonate, the emphasis on advertising losing money. Because I know when I was writing stories about made-for-advertising stuff two years ago, which it's now like above word of the year for whatever reason, you would write a story and be like, oh, this is interesting. There seems to be some sketchy stuff going on. But, you know, Best Buy wasted however many ad dollars does that fundamentally move the needle for anyone because it is a brand and because they wasted ad dollars is there any emotional weight to that i don't know it's it's kind of tricky right it's not as black and white as something else yeah and in the ad tech case a lot of the documents imply that publishers actually made more money because yeah. of these manipulations the people who lost were competitors so that's a tough case to make let's move on to another uh Thing, the Instacart IPO. Um, so as of today, we're recording this on Tuesday, so there might be more news later this week. But uh, Instacart IPO is priced at $30, and people are pretty optimistic about it. Ryan, I think I saw you put something in today's newsletter about that. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think it, I'm sure you guys have had Eric Super on the podcast. Yeah, sure. This is the ultimate. Everything is an ad network. 
IPO, right? Like this is the synthesis of all the conversations around retail media networks. Of course, obviously Instacart doesn't own a grocery store, but they have a massive advertising business. I'm fascinated by it. I'm really curious to see him a moron when it comes to picking stocks and I would never profess to do that, but I'm really fascinated to see how this actually changes the company and when they are now publicly disclosing their finances and talking through everything. I'm really going to be curious to hear how they're talking about their ad products and competition and balancing partnerships with other retailers who are creating their own retail media network. I think it's really interesting. Agreed. Um, and we, we missed this a week or two ago, uh, or maybe longer than that, or when the, um, the S1 came out and the, the, the specifics were there. It's a beast of an ad business. And to the extent that it contributes to both the top line, but importantly, the, the bottom line, the, bottom the, line. the gross margin profile, I would expect that you know, it continues to take center stage in, in terms of how they communicate with Wall Street. You know, again, sort of, you know, wearing my, my, my investor hat and not commenting on, on the stock, there's been some interesting data. I think it, it might have been CB Insights or certainly it's been reported on by, by the journal in the, because they, they raise a lot of money across a lot of rounds. And a lot of those rounds or several of those rounds were, you know, sort of 2021 and later. And the cutoff between uh, investors that made money and made a lot of money if they were the seed investors and ones that will be losing money on IPO day is something I've never seen before. Just these like late stage growth rounds that happened 2021, 2022, it's going to be, and we want to see more public companies. We want to see more and more companies get out and, you know, a next generation, but to the extent that we see more of these, you're going to see just like the bloodbath of investors that just FOMO'd into these key, you know, sort of like high flying names at the at the last minute, and they're like underwater by in case in some cases like fifty percent or more on IPO day, so they can sell, but you're selling at a at, at a at a real loss. It's pretty again, sort of. I, I have this hat, and maybe nobody else is interested in this stuff, but it's pretty fascinating. No, I think I think it's kind of brutal. I mean, I personally was a shareholder in AppNexus where something similar happened. A lot of these late round businesses, it hasn't happened that much in ad tech because a lot of the yeah. ad tech companies don't get to unicorn size and don't get those real late rounds. Uh, but that's why it's a good category to invest in. Got to exit at, uh, after the B round. That's the way to do it. This uh, hit last Friday um, that Twitter X is working with Google to enable programmatic. So my read of this from a product perspective is that Google ads and potentially third-party bidders into the Google exchange will be able to have their ad show on Twitter. And this follows on the uh, news that we talked with um, Letha Uschleider about that IES was, is doing some uh, brand safety work on Twitter. So these both seem like Linda specials, get that money flowing, try to uh, not worry too much about the white supremacy. And anti-Semitism, that's a new mix in the media plan. <laughs> what do you think, Eric? You know, yes, I, I think it's, you know, certainly uh, Linda special in, in that it's, you know, doing, doing deals with, with big players to drive revenue. But it's not, if you think about the nature of the demand that Google programmatic is going to bring, presumably it's not going to be big brands, or may, maybe it's going to be some. I mean, hopefully for Twitter, it will be a lot of small, medium-sized companies that are performance-based that can, you know, start to fill some of these ad slots and start to, you know, figure out how to how to make the the platform work. So I, I view this as a pretty positive thing for Twitter. You know, if you see some of the ads on there, it's just littered with direct response advertisers and 
Tommy Chong and, you know, everything like that. So, you know, likely a signal that pricing is really low and they might have an opportunity to really start to drive the, the, the overall yield up. I think the other thing is that it's limited to the main news feed only, which is where IAS and DV can actually enable some of these like brand safety protections. So I think it's probably like, you know, as good as you can expect for, you know, a, a sort of V1 of this type of deal. Uh, be interesting to see like how how much it contributes. Obviously, we probably won't, won't hear about it. Yeah, a lot of a lot of questions there. First of all, IAS claims to have an exclusive with Twitter, so no DV. Secondly, I yeah. think IAS segments are only available through the Twitter platform, so they presumably would not be available if you're buying Google Ads. I don't know. The other thing that, as a product manager, I'd love to know is what signals are being sent. Do we have a user identifier being sent? Is it an IDFA? Is it an IP address? Because otherwise, what are you targeting on? You know, what sort of context is there? Or to just, you know, you're on the feed and maybe here's the geography. We don't know that. Uh, maybe someone who has access to, to that would know, but I don't know. I think it's really interesting when there are headlines about verification companies doing their verification and brand safety stuff within these kind of walled gardens. And I guess to a certain degree, it's no longer a walled garden if they're working with Google, but presumably still is to a large degree. And then who's actually like, I'm not, obviously IAS, I'm sure they're really smart and they're thinking about these things, but like who's actually doing the auditing and to what degree are they able to put the right measures in place to actually hold a certain brand safety standard? And again, I don't think this necessarily moves the needle on those real blue chip advertisers. Now, as we were talking, I saw that I had an ad for Intel and I had an ad for YouTube TV and then it will, everything else was direct to response advertiser. So still not the blue chip guys. Elon Musk has said 60% of ad revenue is missing still. This is a lot of questions. Google, Facebook, they're, you know, everybody buys them, including the blue chip advertisers, but the majority of their revenue is made up by smaller direct response advertisers. So I view this as a good move from that perspective because Twitter needs to follow suit. In, in my yeah, yeah, Twitter using Twitter Direct is a is not a must buy. Lots of advertisers don't do it or have dropped out. The ad platform's not very good on Twitter. So if you have some large portion of small advertisers who wouldn't otherwise buy Twitter and now they have an option to, maybe that's good. As for safety, I mean, putting on the Obi Wan hat, it's like a den of villainy and scum, like most Eisley. You know, being able to do doing brand safety in Twitter that's a that's a tough job, man. You're gonna lose an eye doing that. Okay, last story. Um, so last week, we had an amazing interview uh, with Amy from Good Loop about good ads, carbon neutral ads. This week, Brian O'Kelly from Longtime Apexes and his new company, Scope3, had a pretty interesting announcement. They're creating an open platform for accessing data. Uh, he calls it a collaborative sustainability platform. And this is a effectively a website where you can look up a publisher's site, find out who's selling the ads, find an estimate for the amount of carbon they're using and otherwise collaborate in some way and maybe have other data coming in from other sources. I wasn't really 100% clear. But it is pretty interesting how uh, bringing carbon to the forefront of the conversation. So a collaborative sustainability platform, CSP. New acronym. We, new acronym. We, well, we always need it. Exactly. So Ryan, Ryan's got to write another one on, 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 his, on his wall over there, which I'm sure is full of of three-letter acronyms. Um, this is neat. You know, this is data that I think, you know, in, inherently when you arrive at a site with, you know, poor user experience, you're like, ah, oh, you know, obviously this is, you know, contributing to 
all this stuff. But, you know, to be able to start to have a place where, you know, it's aggregated and ranked and, you know, people can start to make decisions in terms of optimizing their own businesses for it, I think is a um, really good thing, you know? It does seem like genius. When I first heard about Scope 3 and everyone has written about it, my first thought was like, wow. It's like you he found a way to monetize these commitments that these companies are publicly making and just kind of solving it. Like, okay, these companies say they're going to offset all whatever. Well, here's the measurement stick, right? Like, bang, there we go. So I think that's like fascinating, you know, morally good. I am curious to see like how much companies actually really utilize the tool and and whether it makes a meaningful like difference in terms of like where their dollars actually go. Like that's what I'm always dubious about, right? Like, okay, now that you have the data, what decisions are being made after the fact? And that's like, that's where you got to really do the homework to figure out. Yeah, I have to agree. Um, uh, Brian uh, with Scope 3 was the first ever Marketector TV interview. It's still available on Marketector TV without a subscription, so you should check it out. He also has a dubious distinction of being the only person who has slipped a slide deck into his interview. He just started, he just started sharing. He didn't even ask. He just started showing me slides. I was like, stop, no slides. This is a verbal interview. But anyway, uh, he got the slides in there. All right, let's call it. This was an awesome conversation. Um, stay tuned for the Justify Your Existence with OpenAds.ai. Eric and Ryan, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for having me, man. I really appreciate it. Welcome to Marketecture's Justify Your Existence, where we ask early stage ad tech and martech startups to tell us why we should care about what they're building. Today, uh, we are talking with Stephen Liss and Michael Bishop, from openads.ai. Did I get all that right? That's right. So, Stephen and Michael, tell us, well, first of all, what are your roles respectively, and what's the company's size, and what funding have you raised? So, we're co-founders. I'm CEO. Michael Bishop is CTO. We're a team of five people. We've raised $1.1 million plus 300000 in AWS credits through Amazon's GenAI Accelerator. And yeah, rapidly moving towards the launch of our AI native ad network. Awesome. Um, so you're pre-launch, are you in beta right now? Yes. Yep. So we're partnering with a handful of consumer-facing AI companies with users in the tens of millions, as well as direct partnerships with advertisers, as well as affiliate networks representing over 10,000 brands. So let's go into it. What, what do you do? So very broadly, we help consumer AI applications, whether that's search engines, chatbots, any sort of generative content monetized through advertisements that generate creative in real time, synthesizing contextual data from the user's interactions with the AI, with our AI copywriters' understanding of the brands, their products, and their value propositions. So you're putting ads inside the AI. That's, that's genius. That's next level. This, the story has actually played out before. Every time there's been a shift in the media platform, this happened going from desktop to mobile. This happened with CTV, where all of a sudden it's a new media format. The old ad tech doesn't work for various reasons. And there's this new market for advertising and an opportunity to solve the technical problems and also take advantage of the possibilities in the new format. And that's exciting, but that's still kind of the small picture. The big picture of what we're looking at is really more to do with the future of content on the web, of content publishing, of how we consume content, of how, how we generate it, and how we experience it, and really just the underpinnings of the internet. And that's 
really why we got into this is not just to sell ads, but like sort of see, seeing the evolution of, of um, analytics, of attention, of metrics on the web, and the sometimes degenerate results we get from optimizing on that and wanting to say, okay, here is a big shift in the future of, of the platform we all use. How can we do better? So I've, I've done about five of these interviews so far, and I think three of them have claimed that they are the underpinnings of the future of the internet, So, which is great. It's competition. So let's go back to the, what the product actually does. So the customer is a AI platform. Is that correct? Yep. So the publishers are these AI products, like say an AI search engine, for example. And what they're realizing is they can't just turn on Google ads. It's this problem where going from static to dynamic content breaks a lot of the traditional ad tech. So if right. you have a travel blog, for example, that works great. You can Google ads can scrape it. It has context signals. But if you're like ChatGPT, advertisers don't know what's going to come out of that in real time. So it breaks yeah. targeting, introduces brand safety problems. The consumers type in like, hey, I want to go to Aruba. Uh, what's, what should I see? The content has never been generated before. It's new content from the AI. And you're building a platform that will show ads into that. That's right. And so you know, right now, you know, the IAB has context taxonomy categories in the spec. But you know, as listeners to the podcast know, DSPs don't actually transact on that first-party contextual data. And the no. opportunity for us now is we have this very nuanced context data, people having conversations with AI, having these deep interactions. And you know, it's very nuanced data. And that's something that AI as a creative generator is uniquely able to take advantage of. It's sort of this search quality, like first party context data that is effectively on, on the open web. Right. So uh, where is the, so this is an ad network play to start, I imagine. So you're selling ads that will now be shown in the AI content. Where's the demand coming from to start? Starting off, we have a few design partners, especially among performance marketers. So not right. every brand is comfortable giving AI full creative control without a human in the loop, but any brand that just cares about click through that cares about CPA. So, you know, the usual suspects, high LTV, high CAC industries like finance, you know, they're happy to give the AI you know, the latitude almost like it was a human influencer. And those yep. are the brands that are excited. Is it, is it brands that have a lot of SKUs, like travel, where you have infinite number of like locations, destinations, flights? That's definitely a part of it where like, rather than this, like, the old protocol of A-B testing and dynamic creative being like, okay, cool, we'll set up like a couple hundred different creatives or line items and just being able to say like, okay, let, let like it actually be true like, dynamic rather than like dealing with all these ad tags, dealing with, with the manual generation and testing process, just turn it on and let, let the AI handle it. Like a big part of it is making life easier on brands and agencies. Sure. The, although not clear agencies want their lives to be easier. Uh, they do bill for <laughs> it. So is it only text ads to start? So yeah, that's the... Easiest way, like we're giving brands the ability to you know, upload assets or we can scrape them you know, from their sites, but text is a good starting point. Search ads perform extremely well, and this is you know, an opportunity to bring search performance to the open web. We're also experimenting you with, really with a social proof, like actually digging into like Reddit posts, Twitter posts, product reviews, and stitching that directly into the ad creative. Talk to me about that. How does that work? Part of the like promise here is actually like conversational advertising, being able to ask like, Hey, cool. Uh, tell me what Reddit thinks of this brand. Like give, give me like the Twitter, Twitter's take on this, like being able to just directly ask an ad for, okay, I, I, I want to know more about that. Do you have that in red? Like, okay. Uh, what about a, a like travel option in this other place? 
So really kind of approaching it from the perspective of like making ads that people have a reason to engage with. Google actually experimented with that ad format back, I think they shuttered it right before OpenAI came out with ChatGPT, but the performance for those conversational ad formats is pretty promising. Yeah, with anything like that, it's going to be a very, very small percentage of your exposed audience that interacts, but they'll interact a lot. It'll be very valuable if they do. So that's always the trade-off on uh, on that. You mentioned something earlier about um, safety. So what is your safety approach for the advertisers? Yeah, so there's there's really two sides. There's the sort of analogous problem that you have with you know, user-generated content where it's hard to tell if that's going to be brand safe originally. And that's even worse when the AI is generating it at the moment and for the first time. So now we have to, our AI analyzes the content that it's alongside to make sure it's brand safe. And then there is also this new brand safety problem surface area around the dynamic creative itself. So we have to optimize our models to make sure that they're truthful, you know, telling the truth about the brand and also representing the brand's voice faithfully. How are you doing that in real time? Like how, if I, in the travel example, I could think of, inappropriate travel queries I can make. Um, let's just say looking for nude beaches. That's not really that inappropriate, but let's just use that as an example. How would you in real time be able to tell that the AI's response is brand safe for an advertiser? Well, the answer is add more AI. So you can actually run it through you know, either these LLMs themselves or actually you know, what's more efficient is training a model based on you know, tens of thousands of examples of brand safe versus unsafe. It's actually much more nuanced than the sort of now keyword regex that yeah that has been brand safety so far. Like one of the really interesting things about these platforms is it sort of shakes up the paradigm of okay, ads have to return within the like ORTV timeout and like every millisecond mattering because you sort of have it in a lot of cases a an almost captive audience waiting for the content to be generated from the platform itself. So really, you just need the ad to generate it to be faster than whatever the platform is running. Yeah, absolutely. That's a benefit to the AI world that people are being trained to wait. Okay, let's wrap this up. So when is this going to be available, do you think? Yep. So we're looking at a you know, beta launch, you know, end of September with um, yeah. some of the AI partners. But what we're really excited about is getting traditional publishers on board. So if you're a traditional publisher, you're both threatened by AI because you know, the better Google gets at summarizing searches on the search engine result page, the fewer clicks you get, the fewer ad impressions. And so traditional pubs are now worried about how to adapt to that. And they're starting to explore AI-driven content management systems, you know, chatbots on their own content. And that's potentially the much larger you know, medium and long tail of the market for us. Okay. Well, this was a great episode. I think you did a pretty good job justifying your existence. Uh, Steven and Michael from openads.ai, thank you for being here. Thank you. Thanks, Ari. Thank you for subscribing to Marketecture. New interviews are added every week at Marketecture.tv and your favorite podcasting app.